you're listening to the Blue Marine Foundation podcast, sharing our passion for the wonders of the ocean. La mer, qu'on voit danser. Thank you for joining us on the Blue Marine Foundation podcast. In this series, we explore the stories of the lives of some of the extraordinary people who won our 2022 Ocean Awards. These awards run in partnership with Boat International and they recognise individuals, organisations, community groups and businesses that have made significant contributions to the health of the marine environment, to the sustainable management of marine resources or to public engagement with our oceans. The Ocean Awards Science Awards celebrates an individual or research team that has significantly contributed towards research that is useful and benefits global marine conservation or ocean health. This year, I am delighted to be joined by our winners, Maddie Evans and Chris Ruff from the University of Michigan, who have found a new way of estimating the global distribution of ocean microplastics from space. Ocean plastic is a global issue that has been continually worsening over the last 70 years. Every year, over 300 million tonnes of plastic are produced, and at least 14 million tonnes of this enters our ocean. Humanity's dependence on the ocean means the impacts of plastic in it are far-reaching. Plastic threatens our food security, food safety, economies like coastal tourism, and even human health. Microplastics are small pieces of plastic less than five millimetres in size. They are difficult to see with the naked eye, which makes them a challenge to study. Because of this, we still do not fully understand how much microplastic is actually in our ocean. But Professor Chris Ruff and his research assistant, Maddie Evans, wanted to understand this. Together, they have dedicated over five years of their time to research and have successfully identified a way for humans to detect large concentrations of microplastics from space. This new method is more accurate than methods we've used so far. Crucially, it will give us a holistic picture of where microplastics exist in our ocean, the concentration of them in these areas, and how this changes over time. So Chris and Maddie, a huge congratulations to you both for winning the 2022 Science Ocean Award. Oh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's really a great honor. I want to thank the Blue Marine Foundation for noticing our work and um, improving its visibility, which is really important for us. And I want to thank Maddie, of course, my collaborator on the work, and and thank NASA for making this possible by by supporting the mission, the satellite mission that we use to to do the ocean microplastic work. Yeah, and thank you to also Chris and the foundation. I also just want to thank all of the other people in the microplastics remote sensing community and the science community because they've just been so helpful with you know, shooting ideas back and forth and trying to really get to the bottom of a lot of things. So, so Maddie, what are microplastics and just how bad are they for the ocean? Well, microplastics are pretty small pieces of plastic in the ocean. They go in either um, as microplastics from wastewater facilities, from litter, breaking down into smaller and smaller pieces because they don't biodegrade very easily. Um, and then they can either be ingested by fish or um, you know, larger marine organisms, which could then eventually be ingested by humans. And the health effects of that are something that we're still trying to get a good grasp on. 
Where are these microplastics coming from and how are they entering our oceans? Well, I mean, the original production of them is really ubiquitous because plastics are used in so many different things. You know, they're used industrially. They're used for packaging, of course, for commercial packaging. So we see them every day when we shop and uh, they're used in um, the manufacture of many things like most clothing, most cloth. It's not 100% wool or 100% cotton. Much of it has microfibers of plastic woven into them to help things stretch and keep their shape and not have to iron them and all these nice things. Um, there, there comes you know, a cost with that. And uh, so they're everywhere and they enter into the, you know, the environment um, in a number of ways, you know, the simplest one is just throwing out plastic waste, you know, you know, single use plastic wrappers and things. Those will end up eventually in a landfill. They'll break down, they'll um, get washed into the rivers and eventually make their way to the ocean. When you wash clothing that has microfiber, plastic microfibers in it, which is mo most clothing, some little bits of that plastic get removed from the cloth every time you wash your clothes and it enters the, you know, it enters the water system from the, uh, you know, the gray water outflow from your house or your apartment. And eventually that's also going to make it to the ocean. So, and then it's used all the time in a lot of industrial manufacturing. And then that outflow goes into rivers and eventually makes it to the ocean. So it's really ubiquitous. I mean, yeah, when you say it like that and, you know, you just realise, you know, how we are all actually contributing towards that as a species just by our sort of way of daily living. So, Chris, you have developed this new method that allows you to now detect microplastics from space. Can you tell us what what have you found? What did you discover? Sure. So the, the, the original idea for this detection technique really arose from uh, a related technique that's used with satellites to track um, oil spills. Um, when there's a, a major oil spill, um, satellite radars are, are used to track the spills. And they do that by looking at how the presence of the oil suppresses the roughness of the ocean. And so we just uh, kind of expanded on that idea. The wind over the water causes these little ripples. And you can see them in your eyes. Um, and you can, you can easily see them with radars from satellites. We looked at how windy it was using other um, satellite measurements and predicted from that how rough the surface should be. And then we made direct measurements of how rough it actually was with these satellites. And the difference between those is caused by something suppressing the roughening of the ocean. And we hypothesized that that was the presence of microplastics because it's a similar type of physical mechanism as happens with oil spills. And, uh, and then uh, I kind of gave that idea to Maddie and she spent a year or over a year actually looking at the data very, very carefully and, and realizing that there actually is this very high correlation between the suppression of roughness of the ocean and the presence of microplastics. And that was kind of our aha discovery when we saw that very strong correlation and, and that's the basis of the of the technique wow and so i mean it's it's really quite amazing when you think about it that you know we're able to see the roughness of the ocean from a satellite maddie how sophisticated are satellites nowadays i mean that seems like we've come so far <laughs> uh -huh. yeah definitely um i mean i have a huge appreciation for um, the satellite system that we're using, for which Chris is the uh, principal investigator, so he's being a little bit modest right now. Um, but it's a it's like a bi-static radar system 
which is a, a pretty advanced way of measuring the entire roughness spectrum of the water, which that might be getting a little bit technical, but you can pretty much see, oh, are there small waves? Are there larger waves? Which sorts of waves are there? Which was um, unavailable as much, or it was a little bit more complicated to get that sort of information out of satellites. The first time that Maddie worked out this statistical correlate, this one particular calculation that showed that the way that the microplastic variations are predicted from these circulation models, those variations were really highly correlated with these roughness suppression measurements that the radars were making. And uh, I was amazed at how high the correlation was. It's like a 90 something percentile correlation coefficient. It's this very, very high correlation. Um, so that was when I could see that there was a real signal in the data. Um, and it was like, ooh, this actually works. How do you actually visualize what the microplastics look like? You know, when we first started this, we thought it was the microplastics themselves that were causing the suppress suppression of the roughening. But um, we've done a we've done a lot of wave tank experiments in the last year, and the microplastics that we add actually have a fairly small effect on the roughening. But we've added various types of surfactants to the water. These are oils and soap films, and they have a huge impact, immediate impact on the suppression of the roughening. So um, our current hypothesis is that um, the what we're actually measuring is the surfactants, not the microplastic directly. So the surfactants are essentially acting as a tracer that allows us to detect where the microplastics are indirectly because we're actually direct, directly measuring the effect of the surfactants on the roughening. That, that's what the latest data indicates. Chris, you said before that you were able to predict how rough the ocean should be based on the speed. So how do we know that already? What data is out there that allows us to understand how the wind drives the roughness or, or vice versa? So uh, the, the idea of using satellites to measure the wind over the oceans has been around quite a long time, since the, the late 70s was really the first um, satellites to demonstrate this, these early NASA satellites. So empirically, the measurements of the, you know, radars measure roughness, that's what they measure. And empirically, the roughness measurements made by these early satellites were compared to direct in situ measurements of the wind over the ocean by things like uh, buoys. Buoys typically have these little wind anemometers on them to measure how windy it is. And they compared the two and saw this huge, this very high correlation. So that's the empirical way of doing it. But um, there's a physics-based way of understanding what's happening as well, which has been developed extensively since the 70s to understand the basic physics behind why this works. And the idea, it, the idea is simple. When, when air is blowing across the water, it creates friction. And the frictional force is, you know, transfers energy from the wind into the into the water, and that friction pushes the water, and so it tends to roughen. And the roughening cascades from very small waves to bigger waves to bigger waves. <clears throat> the longer the wind blows, and that's what creates the the roughened surface of the water um, that you see all the time. Like an example of that, um, if you're a sailor. You know, people that sail, especially if you're sailing over lakes and not oceans, you typically will look out over the water in front of you. And, and if you see a part of the water that's very glassy, you know, very, very smooth, 
um, you don't sail towards that part of the lake because there's no wind. Uh, that's the reason it's so smooth. So sailors know to stay away from that because you'll get pecanned and you won't be able to, you'll, you'll stop moving. And it's the same exact phenomenon. Chris, has anyone actually combined these two sets of data before? Uh, not in the way that we're doing it. I mean, the measurement of roughness has been used to measure how windy it is for a long time, for decades. But what we're doing is looking at the roughness and the wind and seeing how much less rough the water is than it should be, given the wind, and and then trying to understand why. And the why is the presence of surfactants and microplastics. But looking at the the anomaly and how rough it is relative to how windy it is, that hasn't been done before. So just the detectability of the of the microplastics was the first big surprise, um, pleasant surprise. And then since we've matured the technique and started using it to do science, we've um, we've uh, discovered a couple of new things. Um, one of them is uh, seasonal variations in the microplastic concentrations in the in the big you know the big um, ocean gyres where the plastics tend to concentrate over time. Um, that they are higher in the summer, lower in the winter, and they have a very consistent periodic variation. And then we've also um, been able to image outflow of the plastic from um, most of the major rivers in the in the uh, in the on the Earth that we are able to. Uh, measure with our satellites, and we can see these episodic bursts of microplastics leaving the mouth of the river out into the out into the ocean, and we can see those things happening. Um, we knew they were happening, right, anecdotally, but being able to actually image them happening is a, it's a really powerful confirmation of that. So I think we initially started looking at the river mouse, and especially of the Yangtze, because we wanted to see whether the inputs into the ocean were also displaying this decreased roughening effect. But what happens is that mismanaged waste from um, either like open landfills, they, they get blown into these giant river basins and they get carried along for however long the river is. And sometimes they can go into the ocean just as trash themselves or they've gone through wastewater facilities and because microplastics are so small they're still not filtered out at times. We looked at the Yangtze originally because that's one of the most polluted, um, most notorious for ocean microplastic pollution rivers in the world and I think just seeing it is a whole other thing than knowing that yes plastic goes into the river this way or goes into the ocean through rivers. I guess I'll, I'll just add one thing um, about, you know, the value of making measurements at these river mouths, and that's just the general issue of attribution. Um, when you make measurements of microplastics in the major ocean gyres, or when you have numerical models that predict the gyres and their concentrations, um, there's essentially no memory about where that plastic comes from because it's a global convergence zone. The plastic can come from anywhere and it'll eventually end up in one of these major gyres. So you can't back propagate those measurements and figure out where it came from. That's been attempted and it's just not possible because of the way the ocean circulation patterns work. So the way to get at attribution is to go to the source. And that's as much as anything, the reason why these river outflows should be monitored. One of the things that you said about your research is that it allows you to track and detect the seasonality of how these microplastics are 
are moving and changing over sort of um, over time, which is something that no scientific model has been able to predict. Can you explain why that's so important? This or next month, there's a uh, an ocean expedition going out to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch that's operated by the um, Ocean Voyagers organization, and they have a research vessel that's going out there um, right now, and they are, we're working with them, and um, the plan is for us to generate these time-lapse measurements from the satellites of where the plastics are and aren't uh, in higher concentrations. And then later this summer, there's another organization called um, the Ocean Cleanup, based in the Netherlands, and they have a fleet of ships that do two things. They go out into the, um, the major um, you know, ocean gyres and make measurements also to help quantify the problem, but they also have these large cleaning facilities built into the ship so that the ships can clean up the plastic. And then on a more global, long-term scale, there's a, there's a general problem with our understanding of microplastics where we have a reasonable idea of how much plastic is being generated and produced you know, industrially and how much is being you know, entered into the water system. But when you try to measure where it is, um, the, the amount that's actually measurable is much, much less than the production. I forget the number, something like 5% of what we believe is in the ocean is measurable. So where is the other 95%? That's a, a big question. You know, the, the plastic budget does not balance. And uh, that's, a, that's a, a, a major open question in the, in the research community. I mean, that's an astonishing figure. And I was quite surprised to learn through through your research that actually we didn't know as much as I thought we did about microplastics. So uh, one nice thing about these satellite measurements is that, you know, they measure measure everywhere. We can clearly see the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, but we also see these large concentrations in the North and South Atlantic, South Pacific, and Indian Ocean. Um, so it gives us a better kind of global perspective on the problem. Could you explain what the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is for anyone else that might be listening and and what an ocean gyre is? Yeah, so an ocean gyre, there are large ocean circulation patterns. So um, it's almost like a continent size whirlpool. And Chris, correct me if this is confusing, but um, you get spaces in the middle that to bring it back to an actual whirlpool, you get spaces in the middle, in the center where all of the energy is kind of spinning together. It's kind of the, the middle point um, where things collect. So that would be where the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is, which is a collection of both larger plastic items. So you'll get the laundry containers, laundry soap containers, or um, traffic cones, or really anything um, out there. But you also get small microplastics and the larger objects will break down from waves and sunlight um, and turn into microplastics more. And so it's just really large collections and aggregate aggregations of uh, plastics. So yeah, the seasonality of, of the concentrations in the major ocean gyres, we think it's probably because there's also a seasonality in the vertical mixing of the water. In the winter, there tends to be a lot more mixing between the surface water and the deep water. And those microplastics, they're not going away in the winter. They're just going down to deeper waters. So the surface concentrations are going down. And then in the summer, when the mixing is reduced because there's less temperature gradients, um, it will tend to float back up to the surface. So 
you know, this is useful if you want to clean things up. It's better to clean in the summer when it's close to the surface, but it's also useful just in terms of figuring out where all this plastic is. And, you know, in the winter, there's going to be more of it at deeper down in the ocean. And in terms of things like interactions with marine life, that's going to influence, you know, when and where the plastics are present for things to eat them. Yeah. And also to touch on this whole missing plastic problem. If you are able to see, oh, there was this large mass of plastic or surfactants or what have you at one point, and then we see that it disappears without moving to another location, it's either sinking or being eaten by some sort of animal, and then people can get a better idea of at what places are the plastics disappearing. Maddie, could you tell us, you know, did you have that eureka moment where you realized that you were onto something after maybe sort of hypothesizing for a while? I think it was first seeing the uh, seeing the maps, the visuals themselves, um, because it's one thing to have a statistic that shows you, oh, this might be seeing microplastics in the ocean. It's another thing to watch them go around the world um, and sort of think of, wow, this could have some sort of an impact. And I think that was something that was really meaningful, especially after just going into the project with wanting to do something. Earlier this year at the UN Assembly, countries came together to form, you know, a Paris agreement effectively for the the equivalent of a climate change agreement for plastics. And now there is a commitment to Uh, for over 175 nations to come together to agree to end plastic pollution, I think, by 2024. So this research is incredibly timely. Chris, do you think that your research can play a role in helping nations to achieve their their targets? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, I mean, maybe this is a bit of a truism, but I believe it, that, you know, you really can't regulate something if you can't measure it. I think that's true in many, many fields, and it's certainly true here. So, having a way to actually measure the the amount of plastics that's there, the change in it over time, whether it's going up or down, and especially to be able to to detect and image the sources, you know, where they're coming from, which which major rivers have the, you know, the most outflow, whether that outflow is changing from year to year, those sorts of things I think will be, you know, very, very useful and relevant for, uh, um, you know, for supporting the regulation. So Maddie, am I right in saying that you were an undergraduate student when you started this project, not a PhD student with Chris? Well, so I had started my um, electrical engineering undergrad and in addition to a German undergraduate degree, and I really wanted to get involved in research in the climate and space department, um, do something with environmentalism because I as with many, I think, people that are college-aged and even younger, um, you know, you feel like you really just want to get something done. You get all this bad news from everywhere, and it's uh, it's a little bit stressful, so you want to start to do something. So um, I reached out to Chris to see if he had any projects that he was working on that he could use an extra hand with. I was thinking about this idea but it seemed kind of out there and, you know, it hadn't been done before. So it was easier to take a big risk with an undergraduate who was interested in just trying something new and seeing what research is like, and maybe it'll work and maybe it won't. And uh, so, um, yeah, so it seemed like a, a better type of 
weird idea kind of project for a stu- uh, an undergraduate student to work on, but it turned out really, really nicely. Chris, is there anything that now you have discovered this method of, of how to measure microplastics from space and I guess you validated findings, is there, do you have a plan or a sense of what is next for you in terms of microplastics? Do you have a, any sort of research goals moving forward? Right. Well, now that, you know, Maddie's done all the hard work for the risky work, <laughs> I now I have a full-time dedicated graduate student on it and another one coming in this fall. And uh, so there's a bunch of different components of the problem now that are kind of branching out and have um, different graduate students and postdocs working on them now. And actually, I just mentioned, you know, Maddie, you know, what she's doing, you know, she's, she's worked with me for a number of years and she's moving to um, a different university. I tried to talk her into staying here for grad school, but she wanted to go there, which is fine. And, and I actually, I really respect what she's doing because the work that she's been doing with me has really, it, it's at the, at the back end of satellite, um, you know, remote sensing science, where you take the data and you use it to do new science. Um, but there's a front end to it, the engineering side of how the radar really works and how it really makes the measurements and exactly how you process the data to measure roughness. And that's the part of this project that is going on now at the University of Colorado with um, uh, Jade Morton, a professor there who's, who works with me on the Sigma Science team. But she is much more involved in the sort of fundamental engineering measurements that are necessary to be able to do the science. And Maddie is tasted the success of the science end and she wants to understand how the thing how you really build a radar how it really does these measurements so she's going to work with a specialist in the in the front end engineering side of it and i think you know at the end of the day you know the day after she graduates and gets her phd she'll have seen the full spectrum of how you do satellite remote sensing so that's and that's pretty unusual to see the, that that whole range and uh, especially when you're that young so i think it's great one of the incredible things about these ocean awards is that it's an, it's a chance for us to celebrate, you know, people at different stages of their career um, having achieved a huge amount. And Maddie, you are a young, you know, female um, representing, you know, women in STEM. And I'm wondering if you could say one thing to an early stage marine conservationist. Um, what what would you tell them? What would you advise them as they as they start their career? Go for it. I mean, everything and anything. Uh, I remember I was when I was first writing the email to Chris um, to ask him if he had any projects. I mean, I was sitting on that email for months <laughs> I, until a friend of mine, um, she finally was just like, you know, you just have to send it. And then we sent it. And then I think it was, you know, especially as young women and young women in science and STEM, um, it's, you can kind of get in your own head and hold yourself back and think, oh, everyone else knows so much about X, Y, and Z that I'm going to sound dumb or I'm not going to know enough or I'm not going to, what have you, any insert your biggest fear there. But everyone, um, everyone's just a person and you can help out in any way that you want to just as long as you put in some work and try to do some good and um so just go for it well i think maddie's advice is exactly right i'd never heard that story before about sitting on that email and i guess i'm a little surprised because 
one word I would never think of to describe you is shy. <laughs> so it's good to know that you did it. And uh, I, I, I say that in a positive way. I think, yeah, you're really, you're, you're very aggressive about going after new things and trying out, you know, like exploring journals that I don't normally read and, and uh, finding these other collab, you know, these corroborative pieces of information about the microplastic world that, you know, I, I'd never worked in microplastics before we did this before. I didn't really know anything about it. I knew how radars work, but not, not that, 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 you know, science application. And so a lot of it was taught to me by Maddie because she read all these other journals that I don't usually read. So it was great. So Maddie, you are a young burgeoning female scientist. You were an undergraduate student uh, when you started working on this with Chris you know, you were clearly at the start of what I can only imagine is going to be an incredibly successful year ahead of you. What What is next for you? Um, well, next year, starting in the fall, I plan to start a PhD, start studying, start grad school um, at the University of Colorado Boulder in, um, in Boulder in their aerospace department. So I'm very excited to do that and to continue working with Cygnus too and continue to be on Chris's science team. So I'm, I just think, uh, excited to start grad school <laughs> um, and also to keep working with Cygnus and keep on with the microplastic stuff. I think there's a lot of uh, really important work to do. And I mean, I don't think that we're anywhere close to being fully done with anything yet. Chris and Maddie, thank you so much for speaking with us again. And just once again, a huge congratulations to you both for winning this award. It's a fantastic achievement. And I really just look forward to seeing what both of you achieve um, next. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. La mer, qu'on voit danser.